watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. Simon Brown from Just One Lap joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. Later in the show, we'll also be joined by Nicholas Kirridge from Schroeders to discuss the APSA Global Value Feeder Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Lender Wells Fargo has agreed to pay $1 billion in penalties on a record fine relating to abusive practices in its auto and mortgage businesses between 2005 and last year. Last year, the bank uncovered inconsistencies at its auto lending and mortgage business and blamed a third-party vendor for wrongly layering insurance policies on its auto borrowers. News of the settlement sent Wells Fargo shares higher on Friday. New programming has attracted Netflix 7.4 million new customers just between January and March this year. The streaming service has signed up more than half of all U.S. broadband households and saw its customer ranks swell to 125 million by the end of March. Netflix is spending up to $8 billion on global TV shows and movies this year and is reportedly looking to buy its own series of movies theaters as it faces growing competition from Amazon and Apple who are also investing in premium programming. And Amazon's chief executive Je officer, Jeff Bezos, told shareholders that the internet giant now has more than 100 million Prime members globally. Until now, Amazon has kept its Prime subscriber number a closely held secret, forcing analysts to estimate the figure based on shopper surveys. Here's more. Amazon shares rose after the company CEO Jeff Bezos said it now has 100 million Prime members globally. That rise came on top of more than a 70% upturn in the last 12 months. Benchmark Investments, Kevin Kelly. This is a, a, an important signal from Jeff Bezos. They've been very closely guarded in that uh, to the prime number. And I think what he's saying, hey, listen, Alexa is a driver and it's leading to more prime memberships. In a letter to shareholders, Bezos also said that Prime Now, a service that offers free delivery within two hours, is now available in more than 50 cities spanning nine countries. Analysts across brokerages prized Amazon's ability to cross-sell and fend off competition. Retail analyst Trey Budge. I think for brick-and-mortar or omni-channel retailers, like say a Walmart or a Target, they still have a lot of options in terms of competing with Amazon because they have those stores that they can bring consumers into and offer great customer service and other bells and whistles that Amazon cannot. However, for strictly online retailers like a, a Wayfair or an Overstock, I think they have a lot of competition here and they have to be really creative in order to compete adequately with Amazon. Some analysts say Netflix could be the next casualty. Amazon is spending more and more on video content, but for now, Netflix leads with its 125 million subscribers. Well, Simon Brown from Just One Lap joining me now, and we can get to Amazon in just a moment. M maybe look at the broader market because we have seen US 10-year uh, Treasury yields almost at 3%, in fact, 2.9826% this evening. <laughs> um, and I think that's worrying some investors in the market, particularly as it uh, 
becomes more competitive uh, against equities, then you could see money flowing out of equities back into bonds. Evening, Stephen. That's exactly the story. Now, the, 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 the rates are obviously going up because interest rates are going up in the US. The Fed has signaled that. We've been, they've been pushing rates now for over a year, and we're looking at, at probably a minimum of three rate increases for, for 2018 and, and forward. And you're right in the sense that you know, what, what, on, on what does a, be a bull market die? It, it dies on high interest rates because you know, if I can go and buy a, a, a 10-year US Treasury and, and, and guarantee, let's go far forward, 6 or 7%, mm -hmm. say, um, why go for equity? Equity is going to give me maybe 7 or 8, but with, with risk, risk yeah. that it might give me a minus number. Sure, it might give me 15, but it might also give me minus. So you know, every bull market dies on, the high, on increasing interest rates, and this is definitely the early signs of the beginning of the end of our bull market. But I stressed the early signs part, because we're, we're away still from normalized rates, never mind moving into high territory. But it is that, that very early sort of canary in the coal mine, and, and certainly there are some investors out there, particularly those of fixed income and the like, who are able to go back into the market, who, who had gone into equities and other asset classes mm -hmm. simply because your yield was, was, was nothing if you, if you went into treasuries or anything like that. So we, we, you will see slowly more and more money moving in, and, and, and that money is largely exiting equity. At this point, it's no concern, but it does tell us that, that the market is maybe in a sense that, that we're kind of moving back to normalcy after 10 years of, of sort of post-crisis markets. Mm. Well, in the meantime, we're in the middle of the, the latest reporting season. Um, in fact, U.S. earnings blizzard this week <laughs> was one of the headlines. Um, and I think we have Facebook, Amazon, and Alphabet reporting this week. So much-watched FANG companies. So far, have they lived up to expectations? They have. Uh, earnings growth has been slightly ahead of expectation, although truthfully that's because the companies manage expectation well. Um, but coming in at, 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 high, double te at high teens, uh, if you take the, the S&P 500 uh, uh, PE, it's a little light in, in that regard and we would, you know, you would you'd like them higher at that point. But for this point of the cycle, that's what we're expecting. The numbers are looking good. We're getting positive earnings coming through and not just, you know, uh, 3% positive earnings, proper positive mm -hmm. earnings coming through. Has there been a kicker from the, the Trump tax cut? So I think a few tickers. One of them, absolutely, the, 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 the Trump tax cut. Not massive. We had the hit in the first quarter. Now we're seeing, sorry, in the end of last year, and we've seen yeah. the, the, the benefit from the first quarter. But I think we're also basically taking, getting improvement from a, a broadly improving global economy. We have had global GDP numbers upgraded, um, not massively, but Europe's starting to come to the party. Uh, uh, you know, parts of Asia, South America and the like are coming to that party as well. And when we look at the S&P 500, whilst these are American domicile companies, they're obviously global companies. Yeah. Uh, the ones you mentioned, Google, etc. Sure, a, a, a large amount, if not a majority of their profits are from within the borders of America, but they're very much earning significant chunks from beyond those borders. So that, that tailwind of, of general global growth continues to feed into them and then the, the Trump tax cuts. I think it's more global growth than, than just tax cuts, but certainly together they're, they're helping the numbers. Yeah. Okay, so we had that story about Amazon in the news. 100 million Amazon Prime subscribers. This is a share that's rallied 33% this year, so it has been doing pretty well. Uh, uh, more, more to come after the results? <laughs> I think so. I mean, pause a moment. 100 million subscribers, you pay $99 each or the equivalent if you're in the UK or something. That's 10 billion that you start your year with. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'm trying to think of JC. And it's annuity income. It's annuity, and I'm trying to think of JC companies that have it. And I, I, I know people who are on Prime. So what does Prime do you? That free delivery for two-day delivery, although truthfully, if sometimes it's quicker if it can be. Uh, they've got their own sort of Netflix service and, and, and a bunch of other pr services around it. Um, and it gives you a, a, you know, 100 million is, is, I mean, it's almost every household in America, notwithstanding they didn't break it up into geographic regions, and it's not in many other regions. Mm -hmm. But it's, 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 it's a vast majority of American households, and it's the convenience. You know, things that, that we randomly order, you know, that, that we hate having to buy on a, on a regular basis, cleaning products and that sort of thing. Yeah. People just put it on order. They, they speak to their Echo device and just say, you know, hey, Echo, order me whatever, and it somehow happens, and at, at no delivery. So it, it's a huge number for them. And if, if I was trying to compete with them, I'd be terrified, because that's just your, your base. Then there's me and you and everyone else who doesn't have Prime. Um, so they've probably got you know, a multiple of that in total customers. These are lower customers. And everyone I speak to in the States, they all have Prime. And I say, you know, $100, big money. They say, do not, it could be $200. I would still take it in, in a flash. Mm. Would you be buying Amazon shares ahead of the results? At this point, yeah, I, I think so. Because I think, you, you, you remember the days when Amazon wasn't making money and there was debates. And you know, we can go all the way back to the 90s and early 2000s. And, and even just three, four, five years ago, you know, is this really happening? And now they're starting to make money. And, and if we look at things such as Kindle, and we don't have numbers on that, but their Kindle store probably generates a vast amount as well. Um, you know, they, 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 they've, they've got the 100 million Prime users and the like. Uh, Amazon is, is an absolute machine, and, and if anything, you know, that they a few weeks ago they mentioned that they were thinking of going into into sort of medical, not the hospital side, the prescription side, um, and and stocks in America sort of that will be competing against lost 30 billion just on a rumor that this upstart who has no just you know no no experience in this business was coming. So you know, Amazon ahead of results, absolutely, because the results are, are almost certain to in enough places impress and see that price higher. Okay, and um, Netflix, that show up, I think, over 70% this year already, um, and last week reporting 125 million subscribers, uh, and just 7.4 million in the first quarter alone. And it's a giant number, and, and the company was, their, their stretch target was 5 million, and they're constantly beating their stretch target. The key point is they've now expanded into you know, 180 or 90 countries. We can get Netflix almost anywhere, and, and that's had a, a huge impact on them. Um, ironically, their biggest competitor, in a sense, is probably Amazon with the Amazon Prime, we've also yeah. got their challenges, and, and they did a price increase last year, the first in, in, in many, many years, um, and there was no sense of slowdown from that. There was concerns that the increase would, would see some tapering off in demand. Didn't happen at all. They're still signing up. They didn't see any attrition, um, but they, they need to spend, and, and they're spending you know, $8 billion, $6 billion on, on creating content, buying content moving into, into, into cinema houses, although that's more because in order to sort of be in the Oscars, you have to have been in a, in a screen, and, and therefore there's just an easier way to make it happen. Yeah. It's a brilliant company, it's a brilliant model. The, the money they need to spend is going to be going forever in a day. They can never stop spending, and that's fine. They've got the annuity, and they've got those 125 million people paying them between six and ten dollars, twelve dollars a month, mm -hmm. depending on geography. The trick is the valuations on the stock are are, are out the park and, and and back some. I mean, they almost make Tesla look cheap. <laughs> okay, and so one company that hasn't probably been moving fast enough with the times is Mattel, the toy maker. Um, lost its fourth CEO in as many years, and I think Margaret Georgiadis <laughs> stepping down after just 14 months, and I think that share price 
is, has halved in value over the last year since she's been the CEO. And it's trading back at levels not seen in 20 years. And a couple of things happened. Um, they, they lost some big contracts with Disney, and now Disney obviously do the, the movie tie-ins. And those have been, if, if you get the right movie and the right tie-in with it, that yeah. is just you know easy, easy, easy money. And they, they lost a bunch on that side. But there's a shift also in how kids play. Uh, yeah. When we were kids, it was go outside and play with a bicycle or a stick or whatever it or was. Take and your action man or your... Yeah, and, and you put... Mm -hmm. you you probably had one and you guarded it. Now kids are, are, are playing on mobile. They're, they're, they're much more in the mobile space. A lot more money has been spent in that space. Um, so in part, perhaps some internal issues with it, but I think also just a general shift on how kids play and what they do. If you remember back in the 90s, it would always be like a toy of Christmas and you know, some company would sell literally tens and tens of millions of it. We still have those toys of Christmas, but they... Kids they want airtime. They, <laughs> they want airtime. They want, yeah. they want uh, uh, iTunes vouchers and, yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Interestingly, the new person who's coming in, he has sold his previous two businesses to Disney, and the sense is that maybe they're looking for an exit, and one of those exits could be a sale to, to, to Disney to perhaps try and take it in-house to help with competitors such as Netflix. Buying opportunity from Mattel? Would you be buying it? No, I would not. I, I would not. I, I, the corporate activity might happen, but if it happens in a year time, that price could have halved again, and then your premium just basically takes you to where you are now. Those old legacy businesses need really, really astounding CEOs to make them happen, and, and they've struggled. They've shown that the, the board has struggled to find that right CEO, and not dissing the new person, but that th th I wouldn't be putting pennies into that. Okay, we have to leave it there for a moment. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we take a look at the APSA Global Value Feeder Fund, and that's with Nicholas Kirridge from Schroeder's. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio, Simon Brown from Just One Lap. Joining us on the line from London to discuss the APSA Global Value Feeder Fund is Nicholas Kerridge from Schroders. Um, Nicholas, thanks very much for chatting to us this evening. So this is actually a Schroders manage managed fund, which you do on behalf of APSA clients. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, Global Value Feeder Fund, are you finding value in this market? I think it's a fund that's looking to do something genuinely different from other products. We have a heritage on the, within Schroders and within the Schroder value team of looking for deep value stocks, really out of favor companies which have fallen on hard times for cyclical or structural reasons and look, trade at very, very heavy discounts to their intrinsic valuations. And this is a fund that's looking to genuinely be as benchmark uncontrained as possible and look at those kind of deep, deep value investments. So I mean, to take us through a couple of those deep value investments, because your, your third biggest holding is Anglo-American, which is a company uh, most South African viewers will be familiar with. Um, are you seeing deep value in there? Is, because, uh, I watched an interview with you a couple of years ago where you weren't very favorable towards resources stocks, and you, yet you do have a couple of resources stocks. Is it just because of the deep value you're seeing in a couple of those? Yeah, I, I think you've got to differentiate between when resources are attractive. So resources have been in or out of, you know, been up and down like a yo-yo over the last kind of 10 years. And what we would say is only for a, probably the last two or three of those years have they genuinely fallen to levels where we think they're attractive. Um, investors have an occupational hazard of looking out about six months when they're trading resources businesses. But these are assets that last for decades. And so you really benefit as an investor from trying to look at them in more of a, a 10, 20 year type cycle and ask, are they cheap in that context? And I think we believe today stocks like 
Anglo-American, South 32, some of the other resources businesses are cheap in that kind of long-term time frame. Nicholas, uh, Simon here, Anglo, South 32, both diversified. Um, is that a particular point? Do you, are you preferring diversified over sort of a single commodity resource stock, or is that just where the market is giving opportunity at this point? It just happens to be where the market's giving opportunity. Over time, we have owned stocks like uh, Lonmin. We do own Impala. These are businesses which are exposed to a particularly out-of-favor commodity in platinum. Um, at different points in the last five years, other stocks have come across our radar, things like gold and coal. But typically, we've found that some of the heaviest discounts are actually in large, diversified businesses. And actually, that's very attractive because those businesses tend to be more enduring, have longer track records, and have greater ability to protect themselves when things go wrong through cutting costs and shoring up their balance sheets. So, so if, if you're in it for the long term with stocks like these, I presume you're looking at a long history of earnings rather than judging them on most recent earnings reports, which might make you change your, your, your investment approach. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. So when people talk about valuations for commodity stocks, they sometimes talk about spot valuations. You know, a stock looks cheap on this year's earnings. But, you know, what we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is this year's earnings could be up 400% or down 95%. And so this year really is slightly meaningless in the context of the long term. When we're looking at the profits of these companies, we are looking at 20-year average commodity prices and simply saying, what is the level of profits and cash that a company can generate if I assume reversion to a long-term commodity price? Why would we do that? Because these industries have decades and decades of evidence to suggest that eventually commodity prices return to long-term real averages. Uh, Nicholas, interestingly, your, your biggest holding is actually 5.2% uh, in Schroeder's funds. Uh, and th these are short-term bonds. Are you using this as, as a cushion for the portfolio? We're not doing it as an asset call. We're simply using it for flexibility to move as and when we see opportunities to invest in stocks. So the fund can hold up to 10% in cash, and we do that 5% as a maximum in cash on balance sheet and 5% in liquidity-type funds, of which the biggest holding is a liquidity fund. But we aren't looking to make an asset call there. We're simply waiting for better opportunities. And as and when they come along, we'll very quickly move that into stocks. Anywhere where you're seeing opportunities at the moment? I think one of the greatest areas for opportunity globally is in banking, probably, um, outside of commodities, which are also very cheap. Banking has an interesting confluence of factors. You know, on the one hand, it's a sector that is continues to be very out of favor, trading at very low valuations versus history and versus the intrinsic value of assets, which look a much more reasonable reflection of reality today than they did five or ten years ago. So that's positive. On the other side, we also have much bigger levels of safety than we've ever had before, with many banks now trading at 40-year high levels of capital. So Aside from also being amongst the cheapest sectors in the world, they're perhaps some of the um, best prepared for any negative environment that might come along in the future. And with stock markets having gone up for the last seven, eight years, that's a nice balance to have. And they represent around 25% of our portfolio diversified across seven or eight individual banks globally. 
Uh, Nicholas, one of the, I mean, Wells Fargo getting a, a fine last week, not in your top 10 holding, and, and a fine for a, a recent activity they were doing. One of the issues post the, the, the crisis of now a decade ago was banking fines coming through. Is that now pretty much out the system and, 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 and behind the, the, the banks? Yeah, we'd like to think so. Uh, I mean, they've been bled dry, haven't they, by a, a, a series of fines, much of which was it was right that they pay for past misdemeanors. I think we're now starting to come to the end of that. Though what I would say is we're not making an investment call um, predicated on that being the sole reason we'd invest. I think I see a parallel here with other industries that went through a prolonged period of litigation and troubles, and whilst that hasn't totally disappeared, they, weren't, they, they, they eventually were, were no longer the drag on the shares that perhaps they had been initially. So tobaccos is perhaps a great parallel where you went through a prolonged period where regulatory uncertainty and litigation overhung that sector, and as that uh, abated slightly, it was obviously one aspect of the positive catalyst that drove tobaccos to be such a powerful and strongly shareholder-rewarding sector over the 2000s. Um, Nicholas, um, your, your regional allocation seems to be very much out of kilter with your benchmarks. So you have 57% in Europe um, and just about 27% in uh, the Americas. Whereas uh, I think your benchmark, which is the MSCI world, probably has more than 50% in America. Are you seeing better opportunities in Europe than you are in the US? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a, great, um, a great question. I think our, our allocation reflects two things. The first is a fundamental belief that running a global fund and having more than 50% in any one country probably is an oxymoron, frankly. And just because the benchmark happens to have such a large weighting to the US, we probably wouldn't do that because we value diversification very highly as an effective risk management tool for our clients. But I would say the second point that you made is, or the point that you made is, and it would be my second point, and that's that actually the US isn't looking very cheap on a global basis, whereas areas like the UK and Europe are. And so it's unsurprising to us that even though we're bottom-up stock pickers and everything we do is driven by fundamental work on a company-by-company -company basis, when we aggregate all those positions together, we end up with a much bigger exposure to areas like Europe, emerging markets, the UK, than we do to the US, you know, certainly with respect to their global market caps. Your, your thoughts on that, Simon, that, that bigger allocation to the UK and Europe? I, I think the first point is absolutely right. The fact that a global index is 50 plus percent one country and, I, you know, which, and that economy is only about a quarter of the global economy has always struck me as a little bit weird. But I take the point as well. The US economy has been ahead of Europe post the, the crisis of 08, 09 um, and, and done incredibly well. And we spoke a moment ago about results coming through. But I think the, the, the next sort of strong places coming through is, is going to be Europe, not necessarily all of Europe, uh, as Nicholas is saying, it's a case of finding your territories, finding your stocks. But I think there's probably a lot more value lurking around in, in, in the Europe markets in the UK th than there is in, in the US, which has had a spectacular run over the last six or seven, eight years. Yeah. So, so Nicholas, this is a feeder fund. So investors in South Africa are investing in rands uh, and obviously lots of exposure to the euro and to the pound uh, and to a lesser extent to the dollar. How does that affect the performance of the fund for the South African investor? 
I think over time, you know, you, the trend is clear in terms of, you know, people looking to allocate offshore and so on and so forth. That long-term emerging currency trend, people will, uh, you know, make their own, take their own view and, and their own advice on that, but we kind of see a long-term trend there. I think when it comes to currencies more broadly within the fund, we don't take currency positions. We think that over the five-year holding periods that we have for the underlying stocks, these things tend to even themselves out. And additionally, there are some very complicated underlying um, currency exposures that exist within the companies themselves, particularly large companies like Anglo-American, where the business itself has very big transactional currency exposures. So we try not to overcomplicate this. We're simply picking stocks, and over time, the evidence seems to suggest that the currencies will even themselves out and we'll do well off our stop selection, hopefully. Is your performance, though, measured in RAND terms? Um, and, it, and if so, then it must make it difficult to track the, or, or to match the benchmark, particularly last year when we saw the RAND so strong. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fund mirrors a product that is uh, listed in Luxembourg and is a kind of offshore dollar currency fund. So that um, conversion into RAND is, is mechanical, and it's one that we do for the provider for, for, for ABSA. So we're not taking a view on that structure. It's one that clients seem to want in South Africa, and we're happy to provide it. But we think of the functional underlying currency of the product as U.S. dollars. Okay. And, and take us through the fee structure, because I see there's a different fee structure for your Class A and the Class R fund. Um, um, so obviously one will have performed better than the other, given, given the higher fees for the one fund. Yeah, I, I mean, we provide an underlying fund to our client, to ABSA, and they then sell on to um, their underlying clients based on your, the access to the fee class that most suits your situation and your relationship with the business. For us, we're just happy to provide a kind of sensibly priced product that reflects the value that we're adding and perhaps hopefully over time will allow the underlying clients to do better. You know, there are a lot of kind of very, very expensive products out there and, and perhaps we don't agree with that kind of, you know, hedge structure where you end up paying very, very high fees. Okay, and we have to leave it there. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Quick, quickly, Simon, sensible, uh, sensible pricing, uh, worth, it for the, worth, worth the money? I like the strategy. I like, I like, I like, I like conviction, and, and there's conviction here. You can see it in the financials. Maybe it's wrong, but in time we'll tell. But I like fund managers to have conviction. Good. <laughs> I have to leave it there. Thanks uh, again to Simon Brown, founder of Just One Lap, uh, for his inputs. Also to Nicholas Kerridge, he's equities fund manager at Schroeder, for his insights as well. Thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.